just to let you guys know, I'm going to be reading from the um, English Standard Version, so it may be a little bit different than yours. So Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. That, as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with the unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But we, when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And some, someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them and set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Page turn. Sorry. <laughs> and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. 
Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. God, I thank you for this time and for this word. And um, may you rest it in our hearts, um, give us wisdom to understand, and give us wisdom in your strength by the Holy Spirit to apply. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thanks, Elise. Get a good nap this afternoon after all that reading. Uh, as we uh, look at stories in the book of Acts, I think it's always important to gather context. Um, and so we want to place the story that was just read. Hopefully you're able to keep up with what was going on. Um, but we want to place that in the context of the whole story of Acts. But I think it's also good to place it in the context of where we are together as a church ourselves. Um, when we uh, started meeting together back in January, uh, and I've, actually ever since then, uh, a common verse, a common theme, like just keeps coming up, regardless of what scripture we happen to be studying on any given Sunday morning. And, and that theme, that scripture comes from John chapter 15. And in that passage, Jesus says this to the disciples. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He says, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And so that's been a common theme for us as a community that as we're gathering together and really kind of our, our mission, our desire is that we'd be a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. We keep coming back to this passage from John chapter 15, reminding us that if that's our desire, that we've, we've got to begin primarily looking at our relationship with Jesus. Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. And if we want to, if we want to see the renewal of all things in, in the world around us, and we want to have a part to play in that, begin by focusing on remaining in Christ, by abiding in Christ. Another word is by resting in him. And that, that our relationship with Jesus then will allow us uh, to bear much fruit. And so because of that, from January until uh, Easter, we spent time in the Gospel of John, just looking at the life of Jesus, paying attention to the things he said, to the things he taught, to the miracles that he was doing, to the circumstances he found himself in, and how he responded to those, and how the disciples were learning and not learning uh, from Jesus, we were intent on paying attention to the vine, right? We wanted to know who Jesus is in order that we might be able to make him known. Not only paying attention to the things that Jesus did, but also to Jesus' death and ultimately his resurrection. And so after Easter, we spent time in 1 Corinthians looking at resurrection and what that means for us, what Jesus' resurrection means for us and the world as we looked at Corinthians. And then as we're starting together as a community, we're like 23 weeks in. Um, we're, this is fairly new. We're new to each other. We're new to what it means to be a community together following Jesus with the desires that we have. And so what better place to look at? What does it look like for a new group of believers to get together and to begin living together and to begin learning together what it means to be like Christ and to serving the world around us than to look at the earliest church? Right? You've got these disciples who were a motley crew of people. And I commented this morning that we actually started as a church in some ways uh, with more than the disciples had, right? 
There's more education in this room than the disciples had. Um, and so looking at the early church, what was it that they did? What were some of their struggles? And we'll see some of those. And uh, where did their power and their influence come from? And how did they, uh, how did they work through the challenges that, it came, that came up? What did it look like to be a community? Not just that, but a community shaped by the gospel that, that had this explosive influence in the world around us. In the world around it. And so here we are. We're in Acts chapter 5. And it's interesting that I'm preaching this week because uh, I preached like three weeks ago. And it was on a chapter that was almost identical to this chapter. Uh, the, the disciples are out doing healings. And the religious leaders at the time begin being bothered by what the disciples are doing. And so there's this conflict that takes place. Uh, actually, as I was looking at this chapter and thinking about preaching this morning, I thought, okay, hopefully there's new, new things to talk about. And I was actually even thinking about all the Rocky movies. You guys seen the Rocky movies? Like, if you've seen one, you've seen every Rocky movie. And this chapter, I was like, is this chapter the same chapter I preached on a couple of weeks ago? It is. This is round two uh, for the disciples and the Sanhedrin for the Sadducees. As I preached on round one a couple of weeks ago, there were a couple of questions that are common questions for me throughout the book of Acts that I just, I've got to confess, I wrestle with. Uh, and as I, as I talk to other people and as I've studied scripture with other people, I realize I'm not alone in that, that, that many of us struggle with these questions. And so I just wanted to put them out there a couple of weeks ago. So I want to raise these just briefly and then would encourage you to go back uh, if these are questions that you wrestle with and go listen to that sermon, I'll tell you, I don't necessarily answer them. Um, but just talk about what does it look like for us, to, for us to wrestle with these questions. And so one of them for me, as I read the stories of the early church and look at what's happening, like disciples are out healing people. And in this passage, we see it's not just Peter that's healing people, but people are like gathering in Peter's shadow in order to be healed. We see these stories that, that many are healed and many are being added to their number on a daily basis. And not only that, in this passage, we see they're like thrown in jail for what they're doing and they have this miraculous escape that's unexplainable. And I read those things and my first question is, why isn't God still acting this way? Or why am I not aware of God acting this way? It's interesting because the disciples in this passage, they, they do, they get thrown into jail and they have this miraculous escape, right? And, and like that's kind of where I have a tendency to focus because it's so amazing. But at the end of the story, right, the disciples are flogged for what they're doing. There's not, I mean, there's an escape that in many ways is miraculous from the judgment of the Sanhedrin, but they, they don't escape the consequence of their courage. And then like later in Acts, if we keep reading, we get to the stories of Paul and Paul's thrown in prison and languishes there for two years. And so I, I wrestle with this. Like, why does God heal some people and not others? And why does God act in some ways at one time and then not at other times? And why do Peter and his friends, like, get delivered out of prison and then Paul languishes there for two years? Why do these things happen? And as we read the book of Acts and really as we read the Bible as a whole, uh, we're reminded, especially as we look at the early church, that this is the kind of mystery that as followers of Jesus, we, we just have to get used to. It happens over and over again. 
And my greatest uh, confidence is found in the fact that just God works in ways far beyond what we see. I see this little picture, right, of what's happening. And God's got the whole picture, and I have to trust in that. I also mentioned in that sermon a couple of weeks ago that as the disciples, and we see it in this story too, they're, they're like displaying this incredible courage and confidence and power as they're going out and doing ministry. And like as I look at the disciples, I, there's part of me that like wants that confidence, courage, and power, and there's another part of me that like really wants to kind of stay distanced from that. I have to be honest about that. And yet, as we look at the disciples and we talk together that we want to be a community shaped by the gospel and like we have this amazing, enormous God-sized vision that, that it's for the renewal of all things. That, like, it takes incredible influence and power in order to do that and authority. And as we look throughout the book of Acts, and we'll see it this morning, that the disciples, the early church, their power and influence comes from being with Jesus. The disciples spent three years with Jesus, and it took them a long time to get it. They witnessed Jesus' healings and his teachings and his miracles, and they witnessed Jesus' courage before the religious leaders. They witnessed Jesus going to the cross and ultimately dying and then being resurrected again. And then we see the disciples waiting in the upper room where they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Their, their, their confidence and their power and their courage begins with their experience of Jesus. And so it is for us. This is why we keep coming back to John chapter 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And I know in, in our culture and in our time and like just my own personality, I just want to get out and start doing things. Jesus, just tell me what to do and I'll go do it. But the early church... And the Bible as a whole reminds us to begin by abiding in Christ, by being present with Jesus and learning more and more about him. And so in Acts, like we begin to see, we noticed it a couple of chapters ago, and it's just going to increase throughout the book of Acts, throughout the story of the early church, that the disciples are on one path of obedience towards God, and the religious leaders at the time are on this path where they're growing in their opposition to God. And as we look at the book of Acts, we can see that story. The story is taking place. And certainly, we can study chapters like Acts chapter 5, and we can study it just from a Bible study perspective, from a historical perspective of what was happening. But there's a deeper message that I think we can pick up from this, that Luke, who wrote this, wants us to notice as he begins to, to differentiate between the disciples and the religious leaders of the time, this growing difference between the two. And as I read these, I read it and I begin to think about the American modern church, the church of our time. And as I read the differences between the religious leaders at, at the time of the early church and the disciples in the early church, I begin to wonder if the American church hasn't aligned itself more with the religious leaders of the time, who in the book of Acts are the villains, than we do with the disciples in the early part. Of Acts. And it's real easy for us, it's real easy for me to like look at groups of people and to point the finger, but as I was reading through Acts chapter 5, the bigger question for me began to be, am I more aligned with the religious leaders who are, are at great peril of standing in opposition to God 
than I am with the disciples, with the early church, who are filled with the power of God. And so as we go uh, through this chapter, what I want to encourage you to do is just to to take some notes. I'm going to highlight like five or six differences between the religious leaders, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin of the time, and the disciples. And those differences then should lead to some introspective questions for us. This is kind of like a great soul check. So if you're taking notes, you could even write at the top of the page just soul check. Um, And not just a soul check for us individually, but a soul check for us corporately together as a church as well. Uh, Before I get there, let me just kind of set up what's going on here, though. The Sadducees, the religious leaders at the time, uh, they had figured out a way, even as the Romans are ruling over them, they figured out a way to gain some, like, positional power and influence uh, within their culture. They figured out a way to make things work as well as they could uh, for them. And they've, they've kind of lived with this power and this influence within their culture for quite some time. And if you can imagine, they've been living these really comfortable lives, certainly in relation to uh, many of the other Jewish people living around them. And then this, this person named Jesus comes on the scene and begins doing these amazing things. And a multitude of people begin following Jesus. And as the, the religious leaders are watching this, they're beginning to realize that their position and their power and their influence in the culture is under great threat. Right? I mean, this is ultimately why they had Jesus killed. And then in the book of Acts, we find this motley crew of like tax collectors and fishermen, these uneducated, like just ragtag of people that are coming along. And I've got to think for the religious leaders, they're like, gosh, what do we have to do to kill this movement? Right? We've killed the leader of it. And now the people that he was leading who are uneducated, who don't have much going from them, are having, are having this amazing influence as well. What does it take? As I was reading this, I was thinking of the Sadducees and the religious leaders sitting in the temple, right? They're kind of like blockbuster at the time, right? And the disciples are right outside sitting on Solomon's porch teaching. They're like red box outside of a come and go, right? I mean, this, they're like beginning to see, oh, what we've been doing is under threat. That's what's going on here. And so as we read this, like, it gives us the context of what's happening, and I think speaks in many ways to the context that we find ourselves in as part of the American church in 2018. So soul check, uh, as we go through this, I I want us to think not just of what's happening from, like, an objective outside of what's happening perspective, but for us to step into that as well and see ourselves reflected in these differences I'm going to bring up. Uh, The first difference is the religious leaders at the time had all of this influence, and and now as we look in in Acts chapter 5, people are beginning to ignore uh, the influence and the power and the authority that the religious leaders have. They're beginning, uh, some of them reluctantly, uh, to follow the disciples, right? And the disciples, these people who really in many ways have nothing going for them in a cultural sense, because they're uneducated, because they don't have a, a place of position or a positional place of power or influence, they're now all of a sudden being held in high esteem by the people around them. So while the, the religious leaders are losing authority, right, the disciples are gaining influence and they're gaining respect. I think the first question that we should ask ourselves as we read this is, what is going on? What is it that the disciples are doing that's allowing them to gain this influence in the world around them. 
If, if we're going to be a community shaped by the gospel and our desire is that it would be for the renewal of all things, we should be asking ourselves, what is it about the disciples that's allowing them to be held in high esteem and the world around them? And why are we finding ourselves on the other side of that as a church? And I'm speaking in the general sense of the word church. Another difference is that for the Sadducees, for the religious leaders, for the Sanhedrin, that their power comes from a place of position. And the disciples' power comes directly from God. As I read this, I think, um, I think about this idea of power and authority that comes from a place of position or power and authority that, that comes from like political power over somebody else, right? And yet God models throughout the Bible, but especially through the person of Jesus, this power and authority that comes from this place of service and a place of humility, right? The, the passage that Alan read earlier from Philippians chapter 2, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be held onto or something to be used to his own advantage, but he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. Jesus' power and authority came from him laying down his life for you and for me and for everybody. And so often in life, we're trying to gain power and influence, even if it's motivated out of good things, we're trying to do it in like a power over sort of way. We want to regulate the way people live. We want to regulate the way the culture operates. And that's kind of our natural bent. And yet Jesus models, and the disciples model this other way of living. Disciples, their power comes from God. And for the religious leaders, their power ultimately comes only from their position. Uh, The Sanhedrin is exercising their power for their own benefit. We see this throughout the book of Acts. And we see this as we study the religious leaders Uh, in Jesus' time as well, what what they're out to do is make life as comfortable for them as possible. They're in not a great situation because they're living under Roman rule, but the religious leaders have, like, figured out how to use their position, their religious position, to serve them as well as they can. While the disciples, if we notice, their power is being exercised for the benefit of others and ultimately for the glory of God. Right? This is the second time that the disciples have been brought in front of the religious leaders and the religious leaders have told them, you must stop speaking in the name of Jesus. Right? And if the disciples are about their own benefit, they're going to be quiet because they know that there's likely consequences to whatever they do, to their obedience to God. And yet, their desire is to serve others ultimately for the glory of God. And so for us as a church, it's a good question for us to ask. It's a good question for us to ask individually as well. Are the decisions that I'm making and the actions and the attitudes that I'm carrying, are they about my benefit? Are they ultimately for the benefit of others and ultimately for God's glory? Another difference, and like as we go through these, they actually become more and more convicting for me, each one we look at. See, the the religious leaders are operating... And their core convictions are coming from a place of fear. Right? Their, their position and their power and their influence is under threat. As you think about the story, people are being healed, right? People are coming to the temple for healing, and they're being healed. People that have been coming for years to the temple, 
seeking healing and not finding it, are now coming to the temple and being healed because of their interactions with the disciples. And the religious leaders resent this fact, which is crazy. Like, if you think about it, who resents other people being healed? The religious leaders should be rejoicing in this. I mean, these, these miracles of God, people are being made well, they're being redeemed, and the religious leaders are upset about it. They're resenting it. Who resents others being, being healed? Well, people who's, who are living out of a core conviction of fear, our position, our place, our influence is being threatened. Whereas the disciples are operating in where their core conviction is playing from a place, is coming from a place of courage. I trust God. God's, God's got us. God's going to watch out for us. God's going to take care of us. As long as we're doing what God is about, we're going to be okay. And so for us, if we're to be a community that's shaped by the gospel, we should be asking ourselves, are our core convictions coming from a place of fear or coming from a place of, of courage and confidence in the word of God? I think this is especially hard for us in our current culture, right? Because we live in a culture that is dominated by fear. Our culture is highly, highly anxious. And it's so easy for us to engage with our culture and just get caught up in the anxiety that is all around us. Think about it, you turn on the TV and it's, it's fear, right? The news, it's, it's, it's fear. And this is where the hate and the anger and the shortness with one another comes from, where we can't listen to one another. Well, it's just a, a culture of fear, right? And you get it on the TV, you get it on the radio. Twitter's like a dumpster fire of fear, right? And it's so easy to read somebody's like hate-filled message and the response that like immediately erupts out of our humanness is to respond with hate and anger and anxiety and fear as well. Right? But as we sang earlier that at the, at the name of Jesus, all fear goes away. As we read the Bible, we're reminded over and over and over again this thing about fear that we shouldn't be about fear. When Jesus speaks or the angels come and speak, it's, it's do not be afraid for I am with you. When we read, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Whom shall we fear? Yet in our culture, it's so easy, even for us as the church, even with good motivations for us to get sucked up into that fear as well. And that fear is not of God. If we're operating out of a place of fear, we are not operating out of that being connected to the vine, right? As we connect back to the vine, as we, as we find ourselves in Jesus and Jesus in us, that fear begins to go away. It's a good soul check for us is to ask ourselves, not just as we're interacting with others, but even as we're interacting with ourselves, am I, am I operating out of a core conviction of fear, or am I operating in this situation out of core conviction of courage? And if it's the fear, our immediate response should be to go to a place of prayer, just asking God, God, give me a spirit of peace. Give me a spirit of sound mind. Give me a spirit of courage. And because they're operating out of a place of fear, the, the religious leaders are also operating out of a place of chaos and confusion. And so as we look at this text and the disciples are brought before them, they have no clue what to do, 
right? There's arguments among the religious leaders. What do we do with the disciples? What do we do with them? Because they're going to continue to disobey us. And is their power coming from God or is their power coming from humans? They're not really sure what to do in the midst of this. And so life is just chaotic. And I don't know about you, but I can relate to the chaos that the religious leaders are experiencing, right? And sometimes you can see that on the outside, like as I'm trying to parent three boys and just like wrestle them uh, into brushing their teeth and uh, going to bed or whatever the case might be, there's chaos, right, that you see externally. And we see chaos all around us, right? I know some of your lives, there's chaos. It doesn't take long for us to be in conversation with one another and realize that there's chaos. But that's, the, that's like the external chaos. There's like, there's the mental and heartfelt chaos as well. Just not knowing always what to do when, when we wrestle with that. And often because we're operating, again, out of that place of fear. But for the disciples, the disciples are living like with this crystal clear clarity. Disciples know there's only one thing we know to do, right? And that's to be obedient to God. And God's telling us, to go out and to proclaim the name of Jesus. There's only one place that their direction comes from. And so for me, as I look at that and I recognize just the chaos in my own life, and even as I'm wrestling with, God, what do I do in this situation? Or what do I do in that situation? And God, if I do this, then this and this and this could happen. And if I don't do it, then this and this and this could happen. So what does it look like or what will it take for me or for us to be able to live with the clarity that the disciples have? It's a good question for us to wrestle with. It's a good soul check question for us. What, what would it take? What, what must I do in order to live with the clarity that the disciples live with? And this one's probably the most convicting for me. And that's that the religious leaders at the time are, are trying to figure out what they're going to do and they're trying to determine what they're going to do by what pragmatically works best for them. And in so many decisions in my life, I am trying to wrestle through which, which decision is going to benefit me the most or which decision is going to keep me out of pain the most. I approach so much of life through a pragmatic lens, and that's what the religious leaders are doing, right? They're trying to figure out, as Gamaliel shows up and says, well, if you will just ignore them, they may go away, right? They're trying to figure out pragmatically what's going to work best for them, what's going to allow them to keep the comfortable life they're living. And for the disciples, their clarity comes because they know their one thing to do is to obey Jesus for the glory of God. Now, as we look at that, it's important to be honest with one another and with ourselves, right? It's easy to look at the disciples and think, okay, like what we've got to do is just like push all this other stuff aside, push the fear aside, push the pragmatism aside, push the, my own comfort aside, and just obey Jesus. And then everything will be just fine. But in reality, when we look at this, there are consequences to, the, to that obedience, right? The disciples are brought in front of the religious leaders over and over again. And in this case, we see them thrown into jail. And certainly, like, there's this great moment of victory where they're freed from jail. But that victory is not for the disciples, right? It's for those that the disciples are serving. Because we see the disciples are brought back in front of the religious leaders again. 
And while they're let go, this time they're flogged for it. There are consequences to their courage. There are consequences to their convictions. And Peter, at the end, well, Luke tells us that the disciples rejoiced in their suffering. And I read that as well and think, I don't know what to do with that either, right? Who rejoices in suffering? I don't know that I could ever get to a place where I rejoiced in suffering. And uh, to be honest with you, I'm not sure Peter loved getting flogged. I'm pretty sure he didn't enjoy that. Peter enjoyed the suffering because he knew the reason why the suffering was taking place. Peter's rejoicing was in serving others for the glory of God. Peter's joy came and living for the glory of God. As I was uh, studying for this and wrestling uh, through these questions myself, uh, I was reading Twitter, which I just said is kind of like a dumpster fire for fear, but every once in a while you'll get good nuggets um, from Twitter, and was, was reading it, and Beth Moore is a, a Bible teacher that I follow. I know many of you know who Beth Moore is, and uh, she, uh, she posted this uh, this week, and I think this speaks really Uh, succinctly to kind of how this passage from Acts aligns with where we are as the American church. She writes this, the crisis of the American church at this critical hour is that we know the issues in our stands better than we know Jesus. It's easy again to like blanket the American church, but like is that true of us personally? The crisis in Todd's life at this critical hour, is that he knows the issues and his stands better than he knows Jesus. Our compromised public witness and rhetoric suggests we've confused knowing about Jesus with knowing Jesus. Being with him is prerequisite to thinking like him. The disciples thought like Jesus because they had been with Jesus. They had experienced Jesus. And for the early church, their influence, their authority, their being held in high esteem came because they knew Jesus. They didn't just know about him. And so for us as a church, for us as a community that's growing and being shaped, this is why we go back to John chapter 15. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. That's our heart. That's our hope. That's our prayer. That's our prayer.